Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is episode 10. And here is a snippet from this week's guest. You know, two or three decades ago or a generation ago, there's a certain amount of risk involved, but you know, you can do so many other things than the status quo and you can create opportunities for yourself. And without a doubt, you have to step out of your comfort zone a lot. And that's certainly been a focus of mine the last couple of years. And again, it's led to some success, but certainly a lot of failure. But it's one of those puzzle pieces. You have to accept that to reach your potential and keep that search for happiness going. Today's guest is a really special person. He is an ultra runner and his name is Rob Krar. He's Canadian and he currently resides in Flagstaff, Arizona with his wife, Christina. He was the ultra runner of the year in 2014 and 2015, the two-time Western States 100 mile champion in 2014 and 2015 as well. And I'm not really sure if everybody is familiar with the Western States 100, but it's arguably one of the hardest running races in the entire world. The interesting thing about Rob's accomplishments at the Western States was that he was doing a 50 mile running race, which he talks about in our conversation, not too long before his first crack at the Western States 100. And he got an entry to the Western States and showed up and got second place and almost won the entire race with very little preparation and was a total rookie when it came to 100 mile and western states so the next few years he went back and completely crushed the race rob has also won the leadville 100 running race as well as having the fastest known time for double crossing the grand canyon and that is such an amazing accomplishment because you're out there by yourself and there's a lot of solitude a lot of space for your mind to wander or not wander and it's just you versus the canyon and rob attributes the grand canyon as a really amazing place of healing and also just a really special place for him to train so he can be successful in all the events he does. Rob has grappled with depression and we talk about that in this conversation and he says that searching the limits of the body and mind one step at a time running into the darkness to find the light has helped him deal with depression and being able to be out there connecting with nature and running. Rob also hosts camps in Flagstaff with his wife, Christina, and I encourage you guys to check out his website in the show notes if you're interested in a running camp. I know that I love running. I was actually a runner before I was a cyclist, and just this conversation with Rob has reignited some curiosity about running, and I kind of am feeling the pull of potentially doing some trail running races in the near future as well. I also love that Rob has such this great love story and relationship with his wife, Christina, and he calls her a fierce outdoor woman and talented athlete in her own right. And he says that she's provided balance, stability, love, and teamwork in his life where he's able to work with the Sierra Club to help promote advocacy in the Grand Canyon Heritage National Monument. He also attributes Christina's influence to helping him flourish in other competitive endurance sports 
and that sport is ski mountaineering. So Rob actually does that in the winter time and we talk about that quite a bit. He's even been to worlds in Europe for ski mountaineering. And I also know that when I was talking to him over the winter about ski mountaineering, he made me want to do that. So Rob is a very inspiring and encouraging individual and his passion for all the things he does shines right through his words and his energy. I'm really excited about this conversation and I was really happy to reconnect with Rob Krar. So let's get into the show. Hey Rob. What's going on Sonia? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm stoked to, to have you here and it's, it's been fun because I, I think I met you at a outdoor retailer last year at the Goo Booth because that's a, a shared sponsor. I think it's about a, been about a year now, which is amazing to think of. There's always those moments in life where you can think back and it kind of boggles your mind that a year has passed, but a year has passed. Yeah, we were uh, chatting about nutrition. I think Goo is having nutrition athletes there helping other people with nutrition. Yep. And you were telling me that you were going to do the Leadville 100 mountain bike because <laughs> you had been injured from, from running. Yeah. Holy cow. That's right. I'm trying to remember when OR show was last year. I think I had actually committed to racing Leadville mountain bike race. But yeah, you know, I had a a stress fracture come up in about April of last year. And biking was really the first thing I did uh, when I was able to coming back from that injury. And, you know, I never really thought I'd race a 100 mile mountain bike race. But, you know, I got into really good shape. There's some awesome people to ride with here. And I figured if there's any year I was going to do it, it was last year. So yeah, I jumped in Leadville 100. It was such an incredible experience, much more than I was ever expecting. So I thought I was going to be one and done with mountain bike racing 100 miles, but uh, I think I'll definitely do it again, maybe in a couple years. Awesome. Yeah. Not only did you just show up and do the Leadville 100, you did it in 706 and you're like 14th or 15th overall, weren't you? Yeah, you know, biking is interesting. I used to do triathlons growing up. So I've ridden my whole life. Hadn't been on a road bike since my last triathlon in 1995, which was the World Championships in Cancun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I've I've ridden mountain bikes uh, as cross training for fun throughout the years. Yeah, you know, riding for me is I have good days and bad days and I can't figure them out. So I went into that race thinking if I'm not having a good day, this is going to be a really, really long day. But thankfully, I felt good from the gun, and it was a, a really exciting race. And I feel similar to my running, the the technical aspects of mountain bike riding are my weak points. But I actually found myself passing people going down pipeline, maybe a little recklessly, hard to say. But I was really pumped. And even coming down the descent after the turnaround, I was moving really well. So I worked through my weaknesses and just kept my head down, worked hard. There was some fun strategy during the race as well. It could not have gone better than... Uh, than it did. That's so cool. And that's such a great example of having an injury and then looking for other opportunities that where you're going to have fun and have an adventure and maybe build out your fitness in a different way. Yeah, there's no there's no magic answer to injury. I'm very thankful that wasn't the original plan last year. But I'm really thankful that's the way it unfolded. You know, I, I'd say that was one of my better responses to injury. I've definitely found myself in pretty dark places and reflecting back, been pretty disappointed in how I've handled injury in the past. And by no means have I got it figured out moving forward. But I think through the the several li- running lives I've had, uh, I'm able better able to cope with it and put it into a broader perspective and think more long term and and not feel so devastated when you when you get the results of an MRI and it shows a stress fracture. 
Yeah, I think running, like I actually was a runner before I was a cyclist back in the day and I kept getting injured myself. And part of it was, I didn't know what to do. Like I was 17 and had no idea how to train and had never done endurance sports. But I feel like the injuries you get mountain biking are really different than the injuries you get running. (laughs) And just like being injured, there's a lot of different things that come along with that because your identity is tied up in some ways in what you do and what brings you joy. And if you can't do that, then what are you supposed to do? Oh, for sure. You know, speaking of injuries, I think I didn't ride long enough last year to get a cycling injury. I'm sure there's ones that pop up that are more frequent. But I I see mountain biking and riding in general similar to the ski mountaineering I do in the winter in that it's incredibly low impact. The key is to stay on your your feet or your pedals and not fall. That's I think that's for me, that's the biggest risk of hurting myself out there. But it was a it was a nice break. Anytime I can get away from the pounding of running, I think it's beneficial. And it's something new and exciting. So, you know, mentally it was a, I don't want to say it was a good break. You know, I was doing what I had to do, but I was really excited with how it, how it all worked out. But certainly, I mean, running in many ways is what I'm known best for. It, it is my go-to sport. I don't love running every day, but I recognize how important it is in my life every day. So when that's taken away from you, when it was taken away from me last year, it's always a struggle. And like I said, there's no magic answer, but um, finding alternatives I think in my life these days, I'm, I'm so busy. There's always a laundry list of things to catch up on. You know, that, that's almost a coping mechanism for me is to, to dive into uh, projects that I've been tabled for years or months. But it's, it's a tough deal. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Back it up. So you were in Italy this year doing a few different ski mountaineering races. And, and was that the ski mountaineering world? It was, yeah. It was uh, the world championships were in Italy. And then I went to France and raced Pyramenta, which is a, a four-day stage race. It's probably the most iconic ski mountaineering race in the world, and it's a team race. Worlds was a, a tough go. I didn't have the races I wanted to, and it was a little disappointing as well. The first, there were two different locations, and the first location we were at, quite literally where we were staying, high in the mountains, you could not see a flake of snow. Everybody had to, to walk up. An, an honest 30 minutes. It was, uh, I think, two and a half miles up to find snow to start the race. So conditions were, were heinous, really difficult, technical, pretty dangerous. So I was kind of glad to wrap that up and get to France and race Pyramenta. It was uh, definitely the, my most in, more enjoyable of the two experiences over there. And, you know, it was, it was incredible. I'm Ski mountaineering in Europe is next level. It's relatively new in North America. And it was, uh, it was reflected in, in the competition. I mean, I had for pretty solid days with some technical difficulties, but we were fighting our way into the top 20 or top 30. And um, a couple of days we were way back in the pack after some skin technical failures. And, you know, even back in 100th place, people are fighting for every position. So it was really exciting. A lot of hard work, four big days, three to four hours each day. So I'd love to get back and race Pyramenta again. That's cool. So for the listeners who have never heard of ski mountaineering, I know that I was in that boat and then I was chatting with you over the winter and you briefly explained to me what it was. And then my personality is go all in. So I was like, wow, okay, I'm going to sign up for this. And I'm gonna, And my husband was like, wait a second, like when was the last time you went skiing? <laughs> so maybe I let people know what mountaineering is. Yeah. Well, did you get on some skis this winter? Admittedly, I didn't. Yeah. Like, I did more uh, flying away <laughs> from the winter as I could. Yeah, yeah. No, so, so ski mountaineering plays, a, it was definitely a, probably a corner piece in, in talking to you today. You know, back in 2010, I was recovering from uh, surgery on both of my heels. And like any stubborn athlete, I tried to come back too quickly. And I was convinced the surgery was not successful. And I'd never run again comfortably, let alone race. 
So it also really coincided with I had just met my future wife a year before. She had moved to Flagstaff and she had always wanted to do this this ski mountaineering and I never really heard of it before then either. So we bought some gear that year and we got on the mountain here in Flagstaff, Snowbowl. There's really great uphill access and uh, it was magical. You know, at Snowbowl, you're allowed to be on the mountain before and after hours. So much of the winter, you're out there with a the headlamp on. You're the, you know, almost the only ones on the mountain back then anyway. The stars are out, the the, the planets and the moon. It was, um, you know, I, I don't, wouldn't consider myself a strong spiritual person, but ski mountaineering for me is the closest uh, I get to that in my life. I'm trying to remember what your question was, what ski mountaineering is. Essentially, it's you, you put skins on the bottom of your skis and uh, they're unidirectional, essentially. If you imagine, you know, petting a cat in the wrong direction, uh, their hairs catch your hand. Similar to the skins, the fibers are, are unidirectional and allows you to essentially hike straight up a ski hill. Depending on conditions and, and what type of skins you have, you can go up really steep slopes. And it's a different kind of hurt than running. It's much more anaerobic than the training and racing I do in, in ultra running. And it's a, a really free motion. When you get to the top, you rip the skins off your, your skis, put them in your backpack or the top of your jacket. And then you can, uh, you twist your binding around. It allows your boot to clip in. And essentially when you're skiing down, you're skiing down like a normal downhill run. And you know, the races last anywhere from two hours to seven or eight hours. And there's multiple ups and downs, so a, lot, a lot of strategy involved in skin, choosing which skins you use, and also how quick you are at transitioning, heat management. You know, you work so hard and, and you sweat so much going up and almost instantly within seconds coming down, you can go from overheating to freezing cold. And I tend to get cold pretty easy as well. So that's always been a, a difficult part of ski mountaineering for me. But going back, you know, 2010, 2011, I came off that, that first ski mountaineering season and it seemed like half of Flagstaff was going to Moab to race the Moab Red Hot Ultra Race or, or Trail Race. And I had barely run the previous year. And I suppose it was that um, stubbornness in me. I just wanted to go out and see what would happen if I, if I went out and ran. And a couple of days before, I did my first four-mile run in, in probably six or seven months. And I could run, and I wasn't broken when I finished. So I hopped in the, the 33K, and I had a really good race. And that kick-started my trail and ultra-running career. I, you know, that season, you know, it's so funny how some things happen in life where you don't understand it in the moment but they make perfect sense later and when it really comes down to it me quitting running allowed my body the time it needed to recover not trying to force running through that winter instead embracing a new sport ski mountaineering all winter long and my body recovered and I had a, a great season of trail running that year and I did my first ultra 50k in October of 2011, I think, somewhere around there. And that kick-started the whole ultra-running craziness that's been going on since. Yeah, and I read something like you went Western States, was it in 2013, and you had never done a 100-mile running race before. And that's arguably <laughs> the hardest running race, the, the King Bee or Queen Bee, I guess, of running. And you went and you got second place like, on your first try, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was... um. I think I did get my years mixed up. I think my ultra was at the end of 2012. And then again, another strong winter ski mountaineering. I jumped in a qualifying race for Western States. It was a 50 miler called Leona Divide. 
And I remember a friend asking, we were out on a run a couple of days before, and he said, you know, if you qualify for Western States, are you going to race it? And this was just a couple of days before that race. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not doing that. I haven't even run 50 miles. How am I going to run 100 miles? But I had a, a great race at, at Leona Divide. I qualified for Western States. I started digging in, learning more about the history talking to some friends and I certainly saw it as as maybe a once in a lifetime experience and I'd be a fool for for passing it up so you know I think there was 11 weeks between Leona Divide and Western States and you know I was still relatively new to ultra training but you know I got some decent training in I jumped in the race it was the second hottest year on record I remember the night before the evening before we were in unconditioned uh, apartment close to the start line I'm just sitting there in my underwear, staring at the ceiling, just wondering how the hell am I going to run 100 miles the next day. But you know, it's one of those things that, you know, our minds and our bodies are capable of greatness when called upon. And I really think that was reflected in the race that day. I certainly raced very smart, very conservative early on. I think that that played a big role. And, you know, I managed the heat really well as a rookie, which was really surprising. And I had a strong finish. So yeah, finished second at Western States my first year behind my North Face teammate, Tim Olson. And, you know, I remember coming, you finish Western States with about 250 meters, 300 meters on Placer High School track. And really before I actually got to the finish line, I knew deep down there was going to be my goal to, to return the next year and try and win Western States. So pretty, uh, very transformative day for me. That's great. And you did go back and win twice, right? I did. Yeah, it was uh, trying, you know, maybe getting into the larger picture. You know, I was at a place in my life where I'd been working graveyards as a pharmacist for 11 years at that time. It was a job that I was never terribly happy in my life. And I, I felt like I had been in a rut for way too long. And it was the biggest goal by far I'd set for myself really since my studies at, at university, you know, juggling division one athletics with a doctor in pharmacy degree. And it was a big deal, and it was a, a obviously a ton of struggle in that year, a lot of highs, a lot of lows, and you know you make yourself vulnerable when you set such a ambitious goal for yourself. You're almost setting yourself up for failure. So to have, I just got goosebumps thinking about it. To have that that year come to fruition at Western States and win it in 2014 was a magical experience I'll never forget. That's so amazing, and. Yeah, whenever you put yourself in those situations where you can fail and everything's on the line, like you sacrifice so much in order just to, to get yourself ready for the event. And then you could go and things could happen that there's no way you could have planned for it. And, you know, to have it go well and have everything work out and come together. And it's not luck, it's preparation as well. But to have mm -hmm. all those things go right is such a cool story. And it's addicting, too. It is. Yeah, you're so right, because there is a lot of planning and preparation. But in a 100 mile race, anything can happen. We've all I'm sure you've had little injuries that, that poke their head up in the middle of a workout or a race that are gone the next day, but prevent you from finishing a race or a wrong turn or a mistake in nutrition. There's a laundry list that things can happen. So I without a doubt, anytime you perform well, in a 100 mile race, there's a little bit of luck involved. So I'm really thankful uh, to have had that on, on my side at Western States as well. Yeah, so for all these races you do, like you just mentioned, all these things that could go wrong. So how do you manage the calm before the storm in your mind before the race? You know, I think one of the coolest things about running ultras is I've never been so calm on a starting line as I am running ultras, which is pretty bizarre, even at Western States my first year. And I think that goes back to the several running lines I've had. You know, I did triathlon and track in high school. I went to 
uh, Butler University in Indiana track scholarship for university, took some time off, ran the roads. But I think for the longest time, especially after high school, I was running for the wrong reasons. And uh, I was trying to impress other people, keep up with the neighbors, and running didn't have the, the value and meaning it does to me now. And I think through trial and error and mistakes and failure, I've figured out training and racing more than I ever have. I don't think anybody can ever fully figure it out. But I feel much more comfortable with my place and, and where I am in my life. And I know all the hard work and sacrifice that I put in in the months leading up to a big race and, and the sacrifices that th those closest to me make as well, and especially my wife, Christina. And I'm okay with failure. There's no doubt without failure in life, you'll never reach your potential. And as much as I don't want to fail on that day, I think I'm, I'm more okay with it than I've ever been. And from the very first ultra I did, that 50K, I went to a place that I've never gone before in my athletic career, running triathlon, track. It's a different kind of hurt. It's a dark place. And it's something that, you know, I've paralleled with my depression as well. It's, it's a dark place that I have a certain amount of control over and I can choose to stop at any moment, but I don't and I embrace it. And I think knowing that on the start line as well, knowing I'm going somewhere I rarely if ever go and being comfortable with that and welcoming it goes a long way. You know, it's, it, with 100 miles to go, it's, uh, I'm very thankful not to be nervous and, and not to be second-guessing myself on that starting line. And there's no doubt. There's a part of me, anytime I'm starting a 100-mile race, I'm still wondering how the heck I'm going to do it because it, it still doesn't make sense. It's such a fascinating thing. You know, my longest training run for a 100-mile race is somewhere in the 35-mile area unless I do a, a longer race. So, you know, how do you stand in the starting line and have this magical day where you literally run two to three times or over three times as far as, as you would in a training run? It doesn't make sense. It's such a beautiful, mysterious thing we creatures are capable of. Yeah, I think it definitely goes to the mental aspect of ultra endurance sports in general, because there's a certain point where your mind is what the challenge is. And being able to be comfortable in those dark places where all you want to do is give up and you want to quit and you think that I never want to run ever or ride my bike or whatever ever again. Like mm -hmm. it's normal for people to have those thoughts when they're doing races. And it's what you do with those thoughts and how you push forward that really helps you not only in your race, but in your life and in every future challenge that you're going to take. Yeah, it is. Lessons learned in athletics, and especially for me and these ultra races, uh, play a big role in my life and vice versa as well. It's a powerful thing you experience out there and probably why I, I keep doing it and want to do it for a long time. So you mentioned uh, depression. So do you think that you found running to help help your depression or what do you think helps you through those hardest times now? Yeah. So, you know, reflecting back on it, I probably started having symptoms of depression back in university. I was certainly in denial, went through the typical process of being in denial and then being angry for it. And then really the turning the corner for me was meeting Christina in 2009 and falling in love for the first time and having someone to speak and be honest to. And, you know, Christina doesn't have the answers, but to have a shoulder to cry on and someone to, to listen was a huge step for me. And uh, I'm far from having it figured out. I'll never have it figured out. You know, I think my, my greatest fear in life is this is going to continue to get worse. And I don't know what the future holds. But running can be a double-edged sword. But there's no doubt in my mind that 
you know, like I said, I don't love running every day, but I love how I feel after I finish a run each and every time. And I recognize its importance. And it doesn't have to be running. It's really being outside, most often being alone. I do most of my training alone to think or not think at all. Being outside, pushing my body, pushing my mind, that's what's most important to me. And it's certainly a coping mechanism. Being an athlete at this level, essentially you know, earning a living as a professional athlete certainly adds a, a, certain, a different kind of pressure to it. And that's where the double-edged sword can come into play because injuries play uh, a big role in, in the long-term future and you have to be really smart about it. And as much as you want to get back rolling quickly, patience patience is key and being patient can really play games with your mind at times as well. So there's no doubt uh, running, being outside is, is most important, but it's not always perfect. What would you say to people because you mentioned being in de- having depression and being in denial about it and I think specifically with mental health, we're not really set up in society to provide an environment where people can feel open and honest about what's going on mm-hmm. and actually know what's going on. So people, what would you say to people who think they might be suffering from depression? What would you say that they should do? Yeah, there's there's no doubt still quite a strong stigma surrounding mental illness and depression. There's no magic answer. I with, Like I said, having someone to talk to was key for me. And Recognizing, you know, I started speaking openly of this a couple years ago. I did a short film called Depressions, and there was a filmmaker named Joel Wolpert who was came to town to just do some running videos. And that video happened really organically. We had no plans to create a video, but we just got talking, and Joel put uh, put the video together, and that really opened the faucet really to being open and speaking openly of it. And the response I got was overwhelming, and there's no doubt about it. I mean, I knew. I knew at the time depression was prevalent, but I had no idea how prevalent it was. So there's probably, if you're suffering and, and you're hesitant to, to speak to somebody, know that somebody you know is probably feeling the same thing and it's okay to, to talk about it and be open about it. Uh, it really opens the door to, I don't want to say recovery, but um, coping with it better in the future. Yeah, I'm sure that that's really going to help other people out there. I know that some of my very good friends, I had no idea that they suffered from depression. And then suddenly you find out that they're in really big trouble and their life is in danger. And it just kind of, you feel blindsided because it came out of nowhere. But you also feel helpless as somebody who is trying to support somebody with depression. So Mm -hmm. from the other side of it, if people are trying to support you or you're trying to support somebody with depression, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, it's such a tricky world we live in these days. Social media is this wonderful, beautiful way to connect and stay in touch with people. But at the same time, I think there's a a real dark side of social media. And I think so many people that there's almost two lives people live and and social media can show only the positive and, and people, it's more difficult to tune in that somebody is suffering. So I'd be very cautious with social media and recognize that social media is, is by far the truth somebody can be suffering greatly behind closed doors and again just being open and supportive you know giving them their number letting them know whenever they feel the need you're always going to be there without judgment and uh, with lots of time to, to talk or chat or sometimes it's just like I said getting out the door for me that's the most therapeutic thing that I have going and you can get out you don't even have to talk just get them out the door get them outside whether it's running biking walking that goes a long way no doubt that's great. That's great feedback for for those of us who really want to help people too. And yeah, mm-hmm. I agree with social media. I love social media because it can be a place of inspiration 
But there are times, even personally, where I look at what everybody else is doing and I think I'm not doing enough. It's like, oh, so-and-so is racing here or so-and-so is <laughs> traveling here. And then you feel like, oh, I should be doing that too, but I'm already maxed out. And being able to, <laughs> being able to realize that you're looking at a sum of a bunch of different people and that kind of adds up in your mind exponentially and it's not actually what really one person is doing. Yeah, it's so true. It's such a difficult beast and it plays such a, a large part in, in our lives these days because social media is, is huge in, in athlete sponsorships and getting yourself out there. You know, I remember when I was first getting into ultra running, I would watch videos of people running ultras. And it's funny too, because I think people very often will run quicker or, or put a harder effort into uh, when the camera is, is filming them. And I would look at it and I was like, There's, I can't do that. Look how fast they're running up this hill. Look how fast they're running during this race. Yeah. And like you say, when, when you're looking at all these great things from multiple people, you can have in your mind that you should be doing all of those things and performing that well and being that happy. So it's a, it's a difficult beast, no doubt. Yeah. So I want to go back to talking about where your mind goes in these long races in the, the dark place. How do you accept that that is not going to be a permanent place mm -hmm. while you're in your race? Well, one of the coolest things about ultras is you're almost expected to go to that dark place. And, you know, I, I use that word a lot, but it doesn't have to be such a dark place. But you're going to go somewhere you probably haven't gone before in your training because you're going so far. Um, so to accept that and know that it's normal, you can have multiple rough patches in an ultra and still have the best race of your life. And I think that's such a cool thing compared to shorter distance races. Even the marathon, when you're really going for it, you feel really dang good until maybe mile 20. And when you, if you hit the wall um, after mile 20, you're not going to recover from it. You're going to be hurting until the finish line. But in an ultra, you can go to that, that a difficult place and you, know, you think about why you're there. Maybe you have made a, a mistake in pacing and nutrition and hydration. And you reflect on that. And if it's something you can try and correct and you're not too far behind, you get those calories in, you walk for a bit, allow yourself to recover. But other times you can be doing things perfect and you're still going to go into a dark place. And that's when you reflect on all the training you did, the preparation, how it's a privilege to be where you are, doing what you are, going to a place that you rarely if ever go to. I reflect on the, um, the sacrifices, like I said, that, that those closest to me made. And then at, in the darkest times for me, I reflect on my depression, how, you know, this is a, a similar kind of pain and I can stop at any moment, but I, I'm in control of this pain and I'm going to keep going. It's almost a cathartic release for me when it comes down to it. Different strategies for sure. And I, I'm sure everybody has a different one. It's never the same each race either. But I think the most important thing is to know that you're likely going to go there and it's okay. Um, and if you're smart about it, you can still have a great race out there. Yeah, I think there's a, something that's called your explanatory style. So I love positive psychology books because in ultra endurance sports, mindset is such a huge part of what we do. And the book is by Sean Acor and it's called The Happiness Advantage. So this thing called the explanatory style is you get to choose how you tell yourself a story about what's happening to you. Mm -hmm. And just saying all those things you just said, that's choosing to focus on positive things. It's not denying your feelings about what's happening, but it's choosing to say, I'm here and this is a privilege, or I've been here before and I'm going to get through it, or my wife made all these great sacrifices for me and I'm really proud that she's my wife or whatever. Like that's way more powerful and helps you get move forward instead of focusing on all these really negative things. 
Yeah, without a doubt. And I think, uh, you know, when you get to that dark place, I think a big difference in, in this running life, running ultras and trails is that in the past, I try and, and fight the pain and ignore the pain. And that's the complete opposite of what I do now. You know, I recognize the pain. And in a way, I embrace the pain and the discomfort latent, especially in the second half of an ultra running race. And that's completely different. And you know, I agree. I think overall, it's a positive attitude. But at the same time, it's, uh, I don't know whether it's positive or negative, or maybe neutral, or just is. When you recognize the pain, you say, you know, this really hurts. And, and this is, is not fun in the moment. But I suppose, again, I'll say, <laughs> it's really type two fun out there, for sure. There's, there's never been a time where I've gone to that dark place and not been thankful for it. So I suppose that is is positive in the long run. Yeah, I had never heard of the expression type one and type two fun until last year at some race I was at. And they they had to tell me what it was. And type one fun is when it's fun in the moment. And type two fun is where it really sucks in the moment. But, you know, afterwards, you're going to say, wow, that was awesome. Sign me up again. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I think type A personalities, um, well, it's hard to say. Yeah. Type one fun is a whole lot of fun. But type two is most meaningful in the long run, without a doubt. Yeah, definitely. So when did you stop working, or maybe you still are working as a pharmacist and become a professional, like get your first professional contract as a runner? So I worked as a retail pharmacist, graveyards from 2002, 2015. My schedule, it was, yeah, my schedule was seven nights in a row from 9 p.m. to to 7 or 8 a.m. And then I'd have the next seven days off. So I chose to do that schedule. When you look at it, it's 26 one-week vacations a year. So you had a ton of time off. I was, uh, thankfully, I was good at transitioning from nights back to days. So it allowed for lots of time to vacation and explore. But like I said, it wasn't a job that I found a ton of fulfillment from. Not digging too deep, but I was on, I'm Canadian, and I was on a working visa. So I, I really didn't have the liberty of leaving my job and, and doing something else. And then I met Christine in 2009. She's American. We got married in 2010, sorry, 2011. And then I got a green card. So now all of a sudden, I have the opportunity to leave my job, but I didn't really know what to do. I didn't have anything to fall back on. And then all that coincided with the start of ultra running. And I started working with the North Face in uh, late in 2013. And they were my first sponsor, actually. And part of that is is I had some opportunities before. But to me, I didn't see myself having the, the opportunity to, to leave work. You know, being a pharmacist is a well-paying, secure job. And I didn't have anything to fall back on. And I didn't want to accept the, the added responsibility of working with, with a sponsor when it wasn't allowing me the opportunity to leave work. It was just something I didn't feel like taking on. So in the long run, it worked out really well because it, it wasn't until I established my, myself a little bit more and, and had some success in races, including Western States and setting the Grand Canyon fastest snow on time that I started talking to the North Face. And yeah, they're my first sponsor. I, I have several others now, but uh, again, another corner piece in this this wild ride. If, if I hadn't connected with North Face and been working with them in 2013, I wouldn't have the opportunities that I have now. And leaving work was really, for me, what I was doing was not sustainable. You know, something was going to break. Working graveyards, training and racing at, at the level I was. Uh, and I recognized that my body was going to break, my mind was going to break, or my marriage was going to break. And I had to make a choice whether to take a, a leap of faith and, and leave that job and, and try and be a professional athlete. And it was a tough decision. And I definitely delayed it longer than I should have. But really, my only regret now was not leaving sooner. 
it was a, a big step for sure. And it opened up a lot more opportunity for traveling and racing. And I think in general, enjoying life significantly more. And this past spring, again, things got, got busy again. We host a number of ultra running camps each year and I coach and there's a number of obligations throughout the year. So I was getting to the point again where I wasn't enjoying things as much as I thought I could. And I was having to travel by myself a lot. And obviously, I really enjoy Christina's company. So we took another leap of faith and Christina left her job as an, as an academic advisor at the local community college. And as of a couple of months ago, we're in this together and she's taking on more responsibility for the camps as a camp director and, and helping in other, other areas as well. So it's an exciting time. It's nerve wracking, but we're pumped to see where this journey is going to take us. That's great. So do you love the business side of what you're doing as well? I enjoy it more than I thought I would. Yeah. I'm not really a numbers guy, but I'm, people will joke that I'm a, a very organized person. Uh, they might use a different adjective to describe it. Yeah, but it's fun. You know, I, I don't have an agent. So everything I do is, is on me in terms of working with my sponsors. The camp is still all on us. Christina's taking more responsibility, but yeah, I, I enjoy learning how to uh, use Google spreadsheets and staying on top of things and responding quickly. It has a certain amount of fulfillment. Certainly as, as things have gotten busier, it's been more difficult to manage. I feel like I'm, I've been skipping out on those little things that I think are most important to be the best athlete you can be and reach your potential each and every race. And that's uh, played a role in the decision for Christina to leave her job. And it's freed up more time for me to feel more comfortable that I'm doing a really good job at everything I do instead of um, feeling a little guilty about some of the things I've feeling guilty that I wasn't giving 100% because I was spreading myself a little thin. Yeah, I can totally relate with that. It's so great that you can have your partner with you because being away from them is really hard whenever you're at these events and you they wish they could be there and you wish they could be there, but it just adds this like low level stress that you can't really do anything about in that moment. Yeah, yeah, it's challenging. I'm really an introvert at heart. So when I do these appearances or events, you know, I really enjoy them. I'm enjoying them more and more as, as the months and years go by. But they're also really draining. And when I finish and I get back to the hotel room alone, you know, I'm exhausted and just really wishing I had the company of Christina or somebody that I feel really comfortable with that I can just uh, talk to and feel comfortable around. So having her there more often now is going to go a long way for both of us, I think. Well, let's talk about your camps a little bit. What kind of camps are they and what do you offer for people? Yeah, so... Our, we host our first camp in the summer of 2015. Ultra running has been so good to me and I wanted a way to give back and hosting ultra running camps was one of those ways. We really didn't know what to expect. Looking back on it, we hosted the first camp a week after Western States. So to organize and host a running camp a week after my first 100 mile race, looking back on it, I don't know how we did it. There's so many little pieces that have to fall into place for the camp to go on smoothly. But it was more than we ever expected. I think one of the biggest things for us is it became so personal for so many people. You know, people arrive to the camp as strangers in so many circumstances. They're, they're lifelong friends. Just a couple months ago, we had 12 camp alumni rent a house and do one of the races at the Canyons 100. So these are people who met at the camp, who stay in touch, who support each other, who are now out pacing and racing with each other and visiting it's really something that is a lot of work, especially the week of. It leaves you pretty exhausted, but 
Uh, it's something I look forward to every time we host a camp and definitely a significant part of our lives um, moving forward. Yeah, that connection piece, I think, is really important. And knowing that you're being of service to somebody else, that's so fulfilling. And I think like ultra sports, especially are can be a lonely place where you're out there by yourself. And it's not lonely in the sense of the word where it's bad, but you're just alone. Uh So it's really fun to build community around you and harbor that sense of connection and also bring other people together that can share that same passion and that same fire that and this is actually kind of what I love about mountain bike stage racing is it's kind of similar. It's like all these people you don't know come together and you spend a number of days together kind of remote and you have all these experiences together that is so much more than running or bike riding. It's, it's these sharing these really deep connecting experiences where external circumstances in life don't matter. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter like how fast you are. Mm-hmm. It just matters that you have the same passion and you're having the same experience. Yeah, it's so cool. You know, our, our core demographic is really, I guess you can call the middle of the pack runners. It's pretty rare if ever we have professional runners or, or elite runners and pretty rare we have true beginners. So you have a group of people who uh, have a similar mindset. A lot of them are, are learning. And what's great is we have so much of the Flagstaff community come out and, and host or host the, the event as well and, and guide runs. And so often these friends have more running experience than I do and the campers can relate to them as well. So there's these strong friendships that have formed between the Flagstaff community and the campers as well. And, you know, it's cool. I think the first year as each camp goes by, you know, I'm, I'm feeling more comfortable. And I think when people arrive at the camp, they're a little nervous. Um, they, they place me, uh, on a bit more of a pedestal than, than is necessary. But it's cool that I can be myself and I'm a pretty goofy guy when it comes down to it. So it's cool to, to be able to let my guard down. And I think after the last couple of years of having you know some failure and some setbacks that it's almost like a more relatable, a more human. And there's a really, as each camp goes by, there's a stronger and stronger connection between myself and the campers as well. So it's a lot of fun. We're hosting our next one in just uh, about a week and a half here in Flagstaff. So it's coming on quick and really looking forward to it. Yeah, I think the the vulnerability and the failures and showing that to people is really important as a professional athlete, because a lot of times people say, and I'm sure you've gotten this like, oh, you're so humble, or you're so approachable. And it's like, that's how it should be. It shouldn't be that you're this person that's up on this pedestal mm-hmm. that nobody can reach and nobody can talk to and nobody can relate to that that's not what really builds long-term inspiration and change in other people's lives and I think that's awesome that you're able to really connect with everybody around you yeah there's no doubt it's strange to say it was a frustration but in the first uh, about two years of my trail and ultra running career things couldn't have gone better you know I raced well at, at, at pretty much every race I entered and you know, people almost, I felt like people thought I was a robot. You know, if I stood in the starting line, I was going to win a race. And, you know, so much of what goes on, people see the tip of the iceberg. They see the 1% and it's really the 99% that happens behind the scenes, uh, the blood, sweat and tears, the struggle, the sacrifice that means the most to me. And I don't want to say I was thankful, but, you know, having those setbacks now, I think people recognize that I'm fallible and I'm not perfect and I make mistakes like everybody else. And we have similar struggles. And I definitely feel that's made me more relatable and and easier to talk to and approachable. It's funny how failure works in life because I don't think you ever, you don't stand on the starting line hoping you fail, but there's never been a failure in my life that I haven't come out on the other side stronger and wiser for that I am thankful for. So, I mean, where's that balance? How much do you welcome 
failure and struggle as opposed to hoping everything goes well all the time. But I think when you work hard and you want to be the best athlete and reach your potential, you're inevitably going to have failure and struggle in your life. So maybe it's a, you don't have to worry about that too much. It's going to happen regardless. Yeah, I think that failure and and failure that happens often, it teaches you not to focus on the outcome of what you're doing. And I know personally, I've had to do a bit of work with this because when you show up to a race and everyone expects you to win, it's hard whenever you don't win. (laughs) And it changes how you approach the race. If you're racing to win versus racing not to lose, what, like, why, how do you approach a race? And it's focusing on the process. And Mm -hmm. this is something I've been talking about a lot, especially on this podcast, but failure teaches you to value something else other than the final results of an event or a goal. And the more you fail, the more you can realize that, wow, there's actually a lot of value in the work done, the journey of trying to even accomplish a goal like this. Yeah, so true. And I think that's, again, goes back to why I'm so calm and collected on the start of these 100 mile races that no doubt, I hope and I, you know, winning a race is is icing on the cake. And it's a really wonderful feeling. But I know, especially the first half of an ultra, I'm running my own race. It's uh, I don't let other strategies or words affect my own race. I know I'm going to go out there and it's rare if ever that I'm leading a race early on. I know I'm going to go to those difficult times. And, you know, it's maybe it sounds a little hokey, but if I have the best race I can, and I finished first, fifth, 10th, or, or last place, if I learn from it, and I put myself went to that place that I rarely go to, then it's a uh, success for me. And, you know, sure, not winning a race or not performing as I well isn't the best case scenario, but I'm okay with things not going perfect and the failure that sometimes happens. Yeah. So I want to wrap it up talking about this Grand Canyon fastest known time. (laughs) Yeah. Number one, what is it? Like, what is the route? And number two, how does it work? So I started running, well, first of all, the Grand Canyon is, is almost in our backyard. It's about an hour and a half to the, the main trailhead of Kaibab and Bright Angel Trail. And I first started running the Grand Canyon in 2009 when I was training for Trans Rockies, which is a six-day stage race in Colorado. Uh, happens to be where I met my future wife. Cool part of the story. But yeah, it's uh, the Grand Canyon from rim to rim is 21 miles. Uh, so if you go rim to rim to rim, it's a 42-mile route. It has about 11,000 feet of elevation gain and descent. It's a, obviously a very challenging route. It gets very hot in the bottom of the canyon. There's you know, not a whole lot of water resources down there. So you know, the Rim to Rim to Rim FKT in 2013 was actually my, my one and only double crossing, but I've spent a ton of time training down there. It's really a great resource to have as an ultra athlete to get that vertical. You know, essentially you can descend almost 5,000 feet in just over six miles, but it's different. I think people need to be really cautious because you can get yourself into trouble because where else in the world do you start a run by descending 5,000 feet? So you can get to the bottom feeling really good and then you look up and and you have that 5,000 feet of ascending under the blazing sun and you can really get yourself into trouble. So it's really important to respect the canyon in a lot of ways. But yeah, the canyon is, um, you know, it's interesting, again, reflecting on those past running lives. In 2009, it was about, you know, when I finished a run the canyon, I either won or lost. The canyon won or I won. And more often than not, I was defeated. And in the time since I I began really focused on trails and ultra running, it's a totally different mindset. I have this tremendous respect for the Grand Canyon, what it means, the people who recreate within it, 
and it's no longer about winning and losing in, in the Grand Canyon. It's about <laughs> having a, uh, a cohesive relationship and finishing a run not broken is a win for me these days. Yeah, I think that almost goes back to what you were saying at the beginning of our chat about why you run and changing the reason why you run. And how, how did you kind of come to that place where that shift happened? Again, so many things happen in life where you don't really understand it in the moment. I never in my life expected to be running 100 miles these days, but it's all these pieces of the puzzle that, that came together. You know, meeting my wife in 2009 at Trans Rockies when she wasn't even supposed to be there. And she was running there too, right, as a competitor? She was, yeah. And, and the story there is that it's a partner race, and her partner originally was teamed up with somebody else here in Flagstaff who got injured only about a month from the race. This will tell you a bit of Christina's character. Uh, she's been running ultras longer than I have. But, uh, you know, our friend called her up a month before a six-day, 120-mile stage race in, in the Colorado Rockies and said, hey, uh, do you want to do this race? Uh, I know you're starting grad school the same week. But somehow Christina worked it out. She ran Trans Rockies. Uh, we met there. You know, she really blew me off at first. But somehow I... Uh, well, I grew a beard and I eventually charmed her into giving me a, <laughs> into giving me a chance. But uh, you still have the beard. I still have the beard. You know, I, I shaved off one time a year or two after we started dating and it was on a whim, like so many other things in my life. And she came home and she just glared at me and said, what did you do? <laughs> so, so yeah, the beard is uh, definitely something uh, I'll keep long term. I feel most comfortable in it. But yeah, you know, piece of the puzzle. Uh, Christina moving to Flagstaff eventually falling in love, getting married. It, I shouldn't follow that by saying getting a green card, but it is part of the story. Having the opportunity to leave work and then again, jumping in that trail race where it was on a whim and nothing I expected to do. Uh, that was my first trail race in 2012. And then later that year, it was when you know when you live in Flagstaff, it's not so much people asking you if you've ever, if you've ever run a marathon, it's have you ever, ever run an ultra before? So in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm just going to run a 50K, get this over with, just to say I've done an ultra. And again, it was on a whim. I had actually planned on running a shorter race at the bootlegger just outside of Las Vegas. And maybe the night before, I was like, okay, I'm just going to jump in the 50K, get it done with, and, and you know, be one and done. And uh, had a great race. And like I said, that really jump-started my ultra-running career. So it's hard to say what that key moment was, but again, put all those things together, even, you know, wrapping my depression into it, coming to a better understanding of it, being accepting of it. Everything came together to recognizing the importance of being outside and pushing my body, my mind, and overall being the happiest person I've ever been. We're all, you know, piece of the puzzle that led me to where I am today and talking to you. I love that. That's so amazing. I think that the culmination of self-discovery and acceptance and then finding a great support network for yourself and then just being open to opportunities and being willing to try new things without really worrying about the outcome too much. It's a really common thing amongst all the successful people I get to talk to on, on this show. And it's, it's so cool to hear it over and over that those are keystone habits and, and mindsets to have around becoming successful and really finding and living for your passion. Yeah, it's so true. I think the opportunities in today's day and world are, are so different they were than they were even a decade ago, most certainly you know, two or three decades ago or a generation ago. There's a certain amount of risk involved, but you can do so many other things than the status quo and you can create opportunities for yourself. And without a doubt, you have to step out of your comfort zone a lot. And that's certainly been a focus of mine the last couple of years. And again, it's led to some success, but certainly a lot of failure. 
but it's part of the, it's one of those puzzle pieces. You have to accept that um, to reach your potential and, and keep that search for happiness uh, going. So what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Yeah, so I'm pretty easy. I'm Rob Carr across the board on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I did just launch a brand new website. It's robcar.com. And my goal with that was really to kind of bring all everything into one spot. So I'm going to be sending out newsletters on a semi-regular basis. All the camp info is there. And my coaching in the future will be based there. There's a large multimedia section. So yeah, I'm really excited about that. Just launched a couple days ago. So certainly an easy way to connect with me. Yeah, that's a great website. I admit that I've spent some time <laughs> checking things out. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. It was a long, long work in progress. It was a connection I made at last summer's camp with one of the the campers is the owner of Pixel, uh, the company that produced it. Yeah, it turned out so much better than I ever thought it could be. I didn't really know what a website, a personal website could be. So I'm excited to see where it takes me. I think it's given me the kick in the butt to uh, be a little more interactive and stay on top of it and get those newsletters out once a month or so and let people know what I'm up to and, and offer some some inside tidbits as well. Great. Well, thanks so much, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sonia. That was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. That was such an awesome chat with Rob Krar. I love that there's a lot of the same things that go on mentally, physically, and emotionally in ultra running compared to other ultra sports, like kind of what I do with ultra endurance mountain biking. All the different quests for finding your best self and having a vehicle like being out there for hours and hours in the wilderness by yourself is such a really cool way to figure out what makes you come alive. It was so fun hearing about Rob's Leadville 100 mountain biking experience as well. And man, I was so impressed with this time. He definitely crushed my time from when I did Leadville 100 and it'll be pretty cool to see him do some more mountain bike races. Maybe I could even convince him to be my teammate at a mountain bike stage race. What do you guys think? I love Rob's stance on how he defines success and failure, and that's definitely a topic that comes up almost every episode of the show. I'm really passionate about that, and I think that anybody who's pushing their limits and stretching themselves has to face success, failure, and the value of hard work on a daily basis. If you want to connect with Rob, check out his new website, robcrar.com. That will also be in the show notes. His camps are there, his social media is there, and you can follow all of his adventures coming up. He definitely travels the world running in all the most beautiful places. Thanks so much for coming back and listening to the show. And also, if you like the show, tell your friends about it. The best way to spread the fun podcast and just podcasting in general is to tell people about it. I know that I wasn't even really listening to podcasts until about a year ago. And it's something that I do almost on a daily basis on my rides or when I'm cooking or even whenever I'm doing laundry because it helps the time pass by faster. If you're looking for ways to support the show, to keep it going, and also to prevent ads from creeping in, is to go to Patreon. I have a Patreon page where there are different levels from anywhere from $200 to $3, but you get something in return like personal coaching and little gifts that I send you. I also have some products that I've designed and one of those are the Go Big Hand Up Gloves and they're really fun gloves for mountain biking and cycling. And you can find those under the shop tab on my website. 
I'm glad to be home. The trip to Oregon was super fun. We got to ride all these great trails and check out waterfalls and hike up Mount Hood. I'm gonna be writing some articles about it. And if you haven't checked out my social media, I have tons of videos and fun photos from the trip. Right now I'm focusing on getting ready to go to Columbia. I leave on July 25th to go to a race called La Leanda del Dorado. And it's gonna be at really high altitude. I think it goes up to like 14,000 feet and living at sea level is gonna make that really challenging. I've never been to Columbia before and I'm really excited to see the culture and learn so much more about that place. And stage races are amazing because you always meet new people and make new friends from all over the world. If you like the show, make sure that you click on some of the stars under iTunes, however many you think is appropriate. I'd really appreciate that. And wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.